You're listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast, where we provide top insights into sports leadership and peak performance through interviews with some of the greatest team captains and thought leaders in the sports world. Now, here is your host, performance coach, speaker, and author, Ben Smith. Welcome back, everyone, to the Captain's Coach Podcast. I'm excited to have yet another amazing guest on the show today. You are in for a treat. I came across Dr. Hollis's work while researching character development and the individuation process on YouTube, and I was immediately impressed with some of the work that he has done, and I heard in one of his videos that he had previously played sports, and I knew that I had to reach out to him and see if he'd be willing to talk to us and share some of his insights that he's had over his 70, 60, 70 plus years of experience um, in psychology. Dr. James Hollis is from Springfield, Illinois, and is currently a licensed Jungian psychoanalyst in Washington, D.C. He's held multiple leadership roles in different young societies and has, to the state, published 16 books that have been translated into 20 plus languages. You can check him out on jameshollis.net. And today I get to pick his brain on some of his expertise which includes rites of passages for the transformation of the individual, a guide for coaches on the individuation process, secrets that most men carry, why we are summoned to play sports, the power of stories in our conscious and unconscious, and much more. I promise that you will not regret uh, spending the time today to listen to our conversation. So without further ado, here is Dr. James Hollis on the Captain's Coach Podcast. All right, well, today we have Dr. James Hollis uh, on the Captain's Coach Podcast. I'm really excited to have him on today. Dr. Hollis, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. Glad to be with you. Yeah, absolutely. So just for some um, some background here really quickly as to why I brought Dr. Hollis on today. Um, I uh, came across a model a couple years ago uh, in regards to to re- uh, in my research into like high performance and leadership. And this one individual that I, I came across said that our character drives our process, which drives our results. And I thought it was a really interesting way to look at, um, uh, to understand how, who we are is important in driving the outcomes that we get sometimes in life. Um, and that's how it kind of started for, for me. And, and I started looking into the distinctions between what character is versus our, our identity versus personality and persona. And I started asking more questions, you know, again, about what distinguishes that. And ultimately, um, you know, the motivations behind how somebody gets certain character skills, such as uh, being a hard worker. Um, and I just think that currently sports psychology and like these, a lot of these mental skills trainers, really miss out on some of the deeper aspects that might drive um, why we do certain things. And so I ended up coming across during my research, Carl Jung, and uh, a lot, honestly, through some of Jordan Peterson's work, and then came across you, who has done a lot of work uh, with Carl Jung and um, has, you know, basically, I think, spent most of your life just uh, researching what he has to do and teaching from some of those, some of his concepts. So 
that's some uh, some background for our audience. And so I'm really interested and excited to hear um, all that you have to say about um, all, all, all of these topics. And so to start here, my first question for you, Dr. Hollis, is has to do with this aspect of uh, how important sports is to this individuation process. Um, and, and I think that sports in, in many ways is like in our current culture, this final frontier, so to speak, of how when it comes to, to boys' uh, transformation process and being confirmed as men, uh, that this is sports is one of the final frontiers to do that well. Um, and I'd love to get your thoughts on if you would agree or disagree with that. Um, and, you know, what can we do uh, from a coaching standpoint point in, in sports to, to help with this, if it's rites of passages or if it's, um, mm -hmm. I just would love to get your thoughts to start with that. Sure, sure. Let me, this is a very large subject, but let me sort of just um, that for a moment. But first to say, sports is one of the arenas in which one is summoned to encounter oneself. We think it's a game and it is a game and it ought to be fun, but we also encounter ourselves inevitably in how we play that game. Uh, it's a summons to accountability. It's a summons to discipline. It's a summons to excellence. Um, it's a summons to dealing with fear. It's a summons to dealing with defeat. It's a summons to facing our limitations because sooner or later they'll emerge. All of these have the potential for character building. All of these also can cause a person a certain degree of regression, where the person in a sense can't deal with that and sort of runs away from that. But if we work that through, we realize we, we are an enlarged person. And as we all know, um, it's, it's the world of sports that helps prepare us for life struggles too, and disciplines and so forth. A um, couple of years ago, I had a knee replacement at the same time as a friend of mine, and he once played football for Southern Cal, and we were talking about how painful the recovery was, but he said, I noticed that I was able to get through it because of my athletic background, and I realized there's only one way through it, and that's through it, and that's discipline and, and, and toughening down there and, and pushing it through, so the re rehabilitation was, was so much faster. You mentioned rites of passage. One of the biggest rites of passage, of course, is that movement from childhood into proto-adulthood. We've all gone through it in various ways. Our ancestors uh, spread over this world from the beginning, recognized the importance of that transition. Now, remember, in the ancient world, the average length of life might have been mid-20s instead of 80s as they are today. So <laughs> adolescence was your midlife crisis, so to speak. But what they really recognized long before psychology as we know it existed was that there was enormous lethargic power in each of us. The part of us that wants to stay home. The part of us that wants to uh, take it easy. The part of us that wants to have somebody take care of us. You know, the comforts of the hearth, so to speak. And what will pry a person from that? And they developed very elaborate rites of separation. And what's fascinating is how similar they were around the world. There wasn't some sort of central committee setting out instructions. So these were individual civilizations, tribes, if you will, struggling with how do we overcome that innate lethargy that is in the psyche of all of us. And when it prevails, we just don't grow up. We don't step into the tasks of daily life. 
So they recognize, first of all, there has to be a physical separation to take the youth away. And this was not an engraved invitation. Sometimes it was a ritual kidnapping. And, and there were typically six stages, sometimes in different orders with many variations within each of those stages. But let me just run through those quickly. Please. First was physical separation. Uh, you can't go home again. Your, your destiny is out there in the world. Secondly, was um, a death ceremony of some kind. And the death ceremony had to do with what is dying is the previous stage of development, the naivete of the youth, the dependency of the youth. The third stage was typically some sort of, of ordeal where, where one would need to uh, undergo some kind of ritual wounding of some kind, which we might look at as child cruelty by today's standards, but was representing for them essentially what you see in a thousand locker rooms, no pain, no gain. If you want to step into an enlarged estate, into an enlarged state of being full of its responsibilities, there has to be some payment. So it could be the breaking of a tooth, clipping of the ear of a finger, scarification, so forth, circumcision, certainly. All of these in some ways saying, life is quid pro quo. If you want something, you have to earn it. You have to pay for it in some way. The next stage was the instructional stage, where there were three kinds of teachings that went on. What you might call the archetypal field, namely, who is our tribe, as opposed to the one across the river? Who are our gods? What is life about? What is death? Where do we go when we die? These are the large cosmic questions that we continue to ask in our unconscious if we don't ask consciously, but, but they were seeking to address that consciously. Second, what teaching had to do with um, what it means to be an adult in our culture, the rights, duties, expectations, privileges, etc., of adult behavior. Uh, and thirdly, uh, the specific um, tasks that one needs to learn, hunting, fishing, defense, whatever that may be. Fourth, fifth stage was typically, um, again, a, a kind of personal trial or ordeal that often meant going out into the desert on one's own or into the jungle on one's own, maybe armed only with a hunting knife and learning to survive. And, you know, not everybody came back, unfortunately. But again, the biggest enemy out there was fear, of course. And what the youth was needing to find was how he could manage and survive, even prevail in the face of his fear. He would not be absent that fear, but he would learn in some way to, to cope with it and, and, and deal with it. And then the sixth, sixth phase was to return to the culture as, as an evolved person. One never went back to live with one's parents again. One might live in the same village, of course, but, but taking on adult responsibilities and, and so forth. Now, psychologically, that's profound because you see in our culture, we have very little that is analogous to that. We hear about the helicopter parents. We hear about uh, uh, youth growing up and, and being in many ways still adolescent in their 20s. In fact, there are many aspects of American culture that are still adolescent. Short attention span, easily diverted, chasing the nearest sensation, not wanting to be troubled by harshness and rigor and struggle and discipline and so forth. And, and two areas of our culture, of course, 
have offered an alternative. One is sports, and of course the other is within the military. Mm -hmm. And only a certain portion of our youth go into either one of them. But for those who do, there's something that they have to face within themselves. And that's where the issue of character comes. Just one last word before I'll stop for a moment. It's great. Character originally meant markings on a slate from the ancient Greek. And um, the assumption being that the gods had sort of put it there. And um, as if it's innate and inborn, and to some degree, I think it is. We often can see that in a child and meet them many years later and realize it's the same person in some way. But it's also something you build and you add to. On the other hand, you know, there's that old saying, athletics builds character. Well, not necessarily. Uh, it reveals character. So character, I think, has to do with the willingness and the capacity to face what one has to face within oneself. And there's nothing like running those wind sprints when you're ready to throw up. There's nothing about doing the extra round of weights. There's nothing uh, uh, you know, easy about getting hit and getting up. Um, when I was writing a book on men a few years ago, I uh, remembered my college football coach. And I couldn't help but think about him. And uh, I did some research, it wasn't so hard with the internet, and I found he was still living at that time in Indianapolis. So I wrote to him, and I just said I wanted to share that I'd had good memories of difficult times. Um, but uh, he wrote back a very simple letter, and he always called me Jimmy. He said, um, well, we remember those days, don't we, Jimmy? And we remember that um, you get knocked down, you buckle up, and you get ready for the next play. And then he signed it, his name. And I thought, you know, that's maybe the only thing that man knew. But trust me, for the youth and for the adult, that was the best thing I ever learned. Um, that describes life as well as anything I know. You know, Jung said life is a short pause between two great mysteries. Well, it is, very short pause. But, but Coach Weddle said, right, you get knocked down, you buckle up, you get ready for the next play. And I thought, that's exactly what I needed to hear when I was 19 and 20 and so forth. And it's stuck with me all those years. Excellent. Um, I love the six characteristics. Uh, really interesting how you started that off with saying that we're summoned, um, which I, I'd love to maybe hear a little bit more of us as to why you think we are summoned to that, if that's just within our nature, especially, uh, you know, uh, masculine or feminine. Um, and then also, if, speak to that, if you could speak to that, and then also maybe some more specifics, if you could, um, you know, in regards to those six characteristics, in particular, what coaches might be able to do today um, to make some like actual uh, traditions and rituals even like uh, today we're not going to be clipping off anybody's ears or fingers right, right. right. Uh, i'd love to know your thoughts on maybe some more specifics as to how we can transform what was used what used to occur and what might have been highly successful in a way of of allowing for that transformation to take place in today's sports world sure let, let me just offer one more anecdote to then try to get into that uh, yeah. i mentioned it also in the book uh, many years ago, when we were living in New Jersey, we happened to live across the street from a high school athletic field. 
And my wife and I got up one morning, Labor Day morning, to walk our dog. And it was a day when the climate was starting to change and there was a kind of mist across the field. So we couldn't see the field, but we could hear the cadence of the calisthenics going on for the football team. And they were probably nearing their first game for the season. And my wife said, with a kind heart, it's a shame those coaches have them out there on a holiday. They should be home resting with their, enjoying their families. And I said, no, no, they want to be out there. They have to be out there. And she said, why? I said, first of all, they're looking for their brothers out there. Secondly, they're looking for their father out there. And thirdly, they're looking to get hurt out there. And she looked at me like, what planet are you from? <laughs> but I think you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, one of the needs for every boy is a sense of camaraderie. Not, not just you know, in the usual sense of gangs, which often bind themselves in a kind of rite of, of passage. You, you're not accountable to your family anymore. You're accountable to us in some way. And, and there's a transition of energy there. And, and we all recall who had sports history um, that probably the best part of it was not the game. It was the camaraderie we had with our buddies in the locker room. Just as combat veterans speak of that being the one thing that was the most, the greatest treasure for them. Um, but, but secondly, the tremendous need for the good father, the wise father, because I said they're looking for their fathers out there. It's not that they may not have a father. Of course, many young men don't these days, which is another matter we can talk about. But they're looking for mentor. I mean, what is a mentor? A mentor is a person who helps you move from here to there. How do you know you can get across there? Well, someone's standing there and says, you can do it. Um, I'm here to help you do that. Here's some things that will help you do that. Now let's do that. And that's extremely important. And one of the greatest losses in our culture is the presence of wise elders who can help mentor people. And it's also true, and this is another footnote here, I'm sticking a personal opinion. Uh, through the years, we've all seen all kinds of coaches. Too many of them are what you might call the screamers. The truth is, once in a while, a guy needs to have his butt kicked, yes. But most of the time, what they're looking for is the supportive father. That is to say, not uh, the one who will hold them to standards, expectations. And when it's done lovingly, with compassion, you know that's in your interests. You know that there's something good for you there. It's not a harshness. It's, it's again, a summons. Um, more young men need to feel the supportive energy of an older male. And that's profoundly the case because as a psychoanalyst, I work with men all the time at various stages of life. Most, most of them in the second half of life. Most of them are still looking for that good father. I don't mean someone to follow or obey. Nothing, nothing like that. It's, it's more like one is looking for that image, that energy, that life example, that model, that teaching that insight into life's journey that one will need to carry with one 
as one moves through it oneself. And it's equipment, vital equipment, so to speak. So that's, that's to me, if I would say any single thing to a coach is yell rarely, but be clear, be firm, but be supportive. You get knocked down, this is how you do it better. You get up, you show up for the next play, whatever the case may be. Now, again, that's a passage. This is transitioning from the family of origin and from the world of childhood into a proto-adulthood. Okay. We need examples, we need modeling, we need specific instructions. And good coaches get those things. Wow, um, excellent. So <clears throat> is there anything outside of, more specifically to um, tr the traditions or even the rituals that they might be able to, to use in that sense? So what you're, are you saying that that experience in general is the ritual or are there particular things that they can do to? Um, sure. sure, no, I think more particularly each coach needs to inject some, some kind of fun, some kind of foolishness, if you will, into practices, not necessarily every practice, but, but certainly the feeling that, you know, we're in this together, this is fun. We're, we play to win, yes, but, but it's, it's about being together in a good cause. That's the real thing. And, and I think some, having some fun along the way is, is essential. Yeah. And each coach has to figure out some, some way to do that. And who knows, um, it could range from a coach dressing in some silly outfit or, or asking guys to play some kind of game where they're maybe circling to the point they can't stand anymore or something like that, that simply, you know, breaks the routine. And when that happens, it brings a, a renewed energy and enthusiasm for the group activity. Because, you know, you, you well know there, there can be fine players, but not necessarily a good team. A good teams will, will beat fine players most of the time. And the reason is because they cover more bases. And that's a better unit to be a part of. So I, I, I think having some fun there. Also, by the way, explaining what we're doing and why. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think the same is true in every field. I, as a psychoanalyst, tell people, this is what we're doing and this is what we're looking for. I wish more physicians did that. Yeah. This is the reason for this procedure. This is the medication. This is what we're looking for. And this is what we want to watch out for, et cetera, et cetera. Bring into partnership in some way. I mean, there can only be one coach or group of coaches. Um, they have to be the boss, of course. But I'm talking about let's explain why we're doing what we're doing. And that we're, we, we have a plan and we're moving forward. So it's, it's, it's about buying into the program, so to speak. We've all read about those successful coaches that build a program and they build a culture. And the, the, the culture in time wins more games than anything else, it seems to me. And that culture is, is one of expectation and belonging and commitment and discipline. And of course, the thing we always have to remember, this is a game. <laughs> Life's the real deal. Mm -hmm. One is going to come up against those kinds of things in times to come. You'll come up with loss in your life. You'll come up with pain. You'll come up with disappointment, defeat. Question then, can you turn within 
find the resources there that um, rise to surf support you. That's one of the keys. I have a, a new book coming out on, on resilience. And um, one thing we all need to know is nature equips us. And, and sometimes it's necessity that brings it out. Sometimes it's good teaching and modeling that helps trigger it and, and so forth. Um, last night, by coincidence, sheer coincidence, I had a very nice exchange with my granddaughter in Texas. And she was talking about some of her struggles and so forth. And I, I think she sort of implied, well, you know, I don't necessarily have all the skills and things of that sort that you do. And, and I simply wrote back, I said, you know, I never considered myself above average in any way. Um, what, what I had to do as a young person to decide, is this important to me? If it's really important that I need to commit to it, and then I have to work hard enough to get to it. It's very simple. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's the work ethic, you know? And, and imagine that that's what my grant to um, here last night. I mean, this just came up last night. And it was a cordial letter, but I, I felt I was being her coach at that point, you know. <clears throat> Old grandfather is coach here. Yeah. And um, that's what she needs to hear. Yeah, absolutely. I'm glad you mentioned this idea of, you know, why we do what we do. I just had a webinar on uh, Tuesday where I talked about this because a lot of times coaches get really tactical and they just are, can be very short-sighted and are looking to perform. And, um, and I think it's important to ask the question at a larger level is why, what's the purpose of sport? Why am I here? And what can I, you know, and why is it important that, you know, these athletes learn specific skills or, or why does it matter if they win at all? Because trophies at the end of the day turn to dust and um, that's a question for them to ask. So I'm on board there. Um, I'd love to move to another question here about um, one of our tenets for leadership. One of the six tenets is that self-expression is the essence of leadership. It comes from Warren Bennis that I really liked. And it's all about, you know, understanding who you are and understanding your strengths and your weaknesses, and then being able to communicate that effectively until you're able to ex express that aspect. You can't, I don't think it can, you can really firmly, fully influence to your potential and get other people sur to surround you to um, reach this common goal. But it, it really makes you question, you know, what does it mean to be ourselves? And how do we know what that is? Um, and then how do, we, how do we balance this need for growth, that we have this spiritual need for growth and, and the, uh, the obvious change that comes with growth? Um, is there anything there you can speak to? Well, Ben, you have the talent for asking about six great questions all at <laughs> one each time, you know, so it's hard to know which one to respond to, but uh, right. <clears throat> I'll, I'll start with the last one. Um, there is within our nature that which seeks to grow which seeks to become, it's built into our DNA. There's also another force inside of us that is regressive in character. The way I put it in one of the books was every morning we rise and, and if we look carefully at the foot of our bed, there are two little gremlins down there grinning at us and they are our enemies. The first one is called fear. Fear is saying it's too much for you, you can't handle it, it's just too big. Uh, lethargy, again, says shut it down, turn on the telly, have some chocolate, tomorrow's another day. And they're the enemy of life, not out there. It's always inside, we carry them inside. So that's what you need to face in your life, your own fear and your own lethargy. Now, the key is 
show up in the face of that. I live in a four-story condo building in Washington, D.C., and I have my cars in a garage two stories down. So I go down six floors to the uh, garage to get my car when I go to the office. And every morning I say to myself a very simple motto, six words, shut up, suit up, show up. Shut up means don't mind. You know, your life is easy compared to most people. There are people tonight who don't have food. There are people who don't have shelter. There are people whose children are being murdered in this world. You don't have any problems, so shut up. Secondly, suit up, meaning do your homework, be prepared. Don't expect it to be easy. Do what you need to do to be ready for what you need to do. And thirdly, do your best. Just show up. Do the best you can. Throw yourself into it. You said a moment ago that winning and losing is dust and ashes in the great scheme of things, and so it is. I mean, that's one of the things that you, you see how it's one of the pathologies of sports is that people will put too much emphasis upon, you know, the results of a game, a game you don't even remember a year later or something like that. It's, it, it's more about when you're there, play your best, show up as best you can. That, that's all you can do. Now, why do I have to say that to myself? I just passed 80. Why do I say that to myself every morning as I go to work? I need to remember, shut up, suit up, show up, you know? So underneath all of this, there's something in us that wishes expression. And it's, maybe it's called instinct. When we are tiny, it's our reality. But because we're tiny and dependent and vulnerable, we have to adapt to the world around us. And when we do, we start making trade-offs. And so we get separated from ourselves. In addition, every child necessarily is trying to figure out what's the world about? How do I understand this? And so we start creating stories or dealing with other people with their problems. We internalize it all as somehow being about us. So we, we have stories that we carry, and that's in my field, those are called complexes, which a complex is a cluster of historic energy that we all carry within us. And when triggered, it has the power to come up and usurp the ego and take over consciousness and, and, and so forth. So a good part of every day is spent serving one complex or another without our knowing it because it happens unconsciously. But the point being, there's also something that's very healthy, that it's seeking its own expression. It's kind of like saying the acorn has within it the great oak tree. Now, certainly fate plays a huge role. How many acorns fall on fertile ground, have enough moisture and light and so forth to become that? But in the acorn from the beginning is, is the oak tree. So part of what coaching is about, I think, is in some way nurturing that potential within those individuals. I have a friend who is a coach, well, he's a retired coach now, and was a basketball coach in another state, a very successful one, but he retired at a certain point and moved into another field. He said the most gratifying part of the whole experience is that years later, he has players from previous years who will call him and share with him that they just had a child born or that they were having trouble and they needed some, some conversation with him. It's, it's that ongoing relationship that is what the worth of all this is. 
and, and you know, to have been on the field of play is, is a great summons, but also to have had camaraderie there, I think, is, is, is critical. In other words, I'm, I'm emphasizing today something that you don't see much in coaching clinics, and that's the feeling function. How does it feel to be here with these other people? How do I feel about myself, how I feel about them, and, and so forth? We have to add to that another piece. Most people, contrary to what you see in their persona, don't think very highly of themselves. If you get to talk to people privately, as I do all the time, you know, they, they, they all feel in some way failures, inadequate, um, cowardly, uh, are preoccupied with shortcomings, et cetera. They all are. And you wouldn't know it because they don't necessarily advertise it. But then you have to realize that's going on in all these players too. And, and so important, I think, to not shame players, um, to, to remember at one point what they most need is belief in the possible. And that's what you have to affirm is, all right, we'll get it right next time. Let's do it again. We'll get it right. We'll do it again. We'll get it right. That sort of thing. And, and when you do that, you, you know, you're really helping a person see beyond that stuck point of shame and failure, which most people carry. I, I can tell you, having talked to, to men who happen to have a sports background, every single one of them remembers a time when they failed the team. And it could have been decades ago, but it's stuck in here forever. And they can't let it define them, what you might call the Billy Buckner syndrome here, mm -hmm. uh, poor guy. I, I once, for example, let an end get behind me and I was faked out on a fake play and it worked well. And I realized, oh, oh, <laughs> turned around and started running, couldn't catch up with him in the ball and they scored a touchdown. That was the margin for the game. I've never forgot that play is plays over in my psyche. And that, that goes back now close to 60 years, imagine. But it's still in there. And it's not the only failure in life, but again, that's that's the game of life uh, you know at least one is um in the game so to speak yeah i uh i couldn't agree more i mean i've failed many times and so those those moments are always uh searing in my memory seared in my memory so to speak but um i'd love to ask you you mentioned this idea of complexes and i never had heard it defined or described as the story that you tell i know that there is like the narrative theory of identity um and how, how important narrative and story is into who mm -hmm. we see ourselves to be. Um, I guess one of the questions I have is that, uh, and I'm sorry I didn't put, post this previously, but uh, personality, is that something that you see as a complex or a story that we tell about ourselves? Or is that something that is a part of who we are? Well, I think a personality is um, an innate structure that's there in the beginning. You can often see it in a baby. But it can be overridden by the power of those stories. And um, by stories, I don't necessarily mean a conscious narrative we tell ourselves, but it's, it's our psyche's way in trying to make sense of something or trying to get the, what the message is. And, and no stories are more powerful than the ones of which we know not. That's the key. Now, if we, some of them are coming from family of origin, from our time and place in history. 
For example, if you ask, why would a child feel scarred by poverty or disease or alcoholism or racism or something like that? And the answer is because every child in some way interprets his or her environment as, as a personal statement. And, and you, you get a story about that. And the less examined, the more autonomous those stories are. That's why we have so many repetitions in our lives. It, it, no one wakes in the morning and looks in the mirror while brushing their teeth and, and says, well, you know, today I'm gonna do the same stupid counterproductive things I've done for decades. <laughs> but there's a good chance we will because those stories are playing out inside of us. And one of the ways I work as an analyst to say, all right, let's look at this pattern. And, and see, the problem with the unconscious is it's unconscious. So I can't speak about it directly, but I can see the behavioral pattern, or I can see the, the way this shows up in somebody's dream and work backwards to begin to see, well, there's the kind of story that would give rise to that. And realize that's the child's interpretation of something. So we all carry, that's why so much of our life can be regressive and repeti repetitious, and so much of it's counterproductive because we're in service to these stories. So there, again, inside is always a civil war. The, the intimidation of fear and lethargy on the one hand and the summons to growth and development and individuation and, and the power of the stories to override both. And yet there's something in us. Now, when we have those kinds of collisions, that's what produces symptoms. In my field, we don't like it. Let's say I do all the right things as a person, but inwardly I have no sense of satisfaction in it or are just meaningless or I'm burned out or bored or whatever. It's, I'm, I'm caught there between two stories. Here's the story I've received, which tells me this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. And here's my innate nature seeking its own expression, which may have very little to do with that other. And the greater the discrepancy, the, the more that collision produces a symptom such as loss of energy or depression or, or um, uh, substance abuse or, or something like that. I've never thought of story being unconscious. You said that a lot of times it's not conscious. So... Mm -hmm. I, I always think of the, of the narrative that we play in our mind, this, this inner voice, so to speak, uh, a lot of sports psychologists would call it self-talk. Mm -hmm. This person in our mind that is constantly there, that is speaking to us in a particular way, and that we need to take ownership of the way that it speaks to us. Um, and, I, and I think that's a really interesting way to view it. So any thoughts there about um, the inner voice that we have that is conscious and Sure. All that can battle this unconscious story that we're not even aware of. Well, there, there are many levels of story, as you've just suggested. And um, I remember when I was living in the Philadelphia area, Philadelphia Phillies um, hired a hypnotist to help Mike Schmidt uh, deal with his performance anxiety, even though he's you know National League leader in home runs and so forth. When he was up to bat, you could more or less see the sawdust coming out of the bat. There's so great the tension. Well, there was a conflict of stories. His natural talent, which was demonstrable, batting average, home runs, et cetera. Um, and on the other hand, stories I don't know about, because I don't know him, uh, that, that undermined that. And caught in the middle, and of course the hypnosis uh, desire was to say, can we produce a more effective, as you say, conscious voice within us? And that's helpful. 
And, and that's why we can produce greater performance in every area if we have a certain story that allows us to focus on the task at hand rather than get distracted. Now, to give you a quick example out of public speaking, and um, I'm a card-carrying introvert, so it's not kind of an unnatural act for me to stand up and start talking to people. So the talk that I have with myself in the moments before going on is, you know, these folks are not interested in you. I mean, they're not here for you. They're here for their own lives. You're the vehicle. It's not about you. Shut up. It's not about you. Um, what have you learned along this highway that could be helpful to people? And that's what you're here for. Share that. And, and it pushes aside my anxieties. And once I get into it, it's, it, you know, it carries itself. People say, oh, you're so calm and this is so easy for, they don't know. Yeah. They don't know. And they don't have to know. The same about writing. Uh, written 16 books and you know there's always writer's anxiety red smith a sports columnist said writing is easier just sit down and open a vein somewhere you know <laughs> and but you know there's also something satisfying about hearing or seeing those words start going up there on that computer screen and falling into place that's 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 a different kind of sport if you will and it's literally it's hard work but it's fun. And if it's not fun, go do something that is. And by fun, I don't mean, um, you know, trivial or supercilious. I, I, I mean, you take some pleasure from it, even if it requires enormous sacrifice and discipline. So I work all day as a therapist and at nights when I write, you know, it doesn't mean that I'm bubbling with energy and wanting to do not wanting to do something else but i at least several nights a week i'll sit down and and you know there's there's the old uh, you know sports ethic it's like suit up and, and show up and that's how it happens so yeah there are levels of talk inside of all of us and uh you know one of the things that we all realize is that we all carry also negative voices destructive voices uh, the part in us that may feel unworthy you know i i think the single best thing that could come out of a coaching um uh, student relationship would be increased self-respect for for the young person i mean the young person has comes great out with greater self-respect or self-confidence doesn't mean because i did everything right it means I, I can feel better about myself even in the difficult times. Now, that's a large psychological task. That's really a life's work to do that. Mm -hmm. Learning to accept oneself, forgive oneself, um, and, and, and be one's own best advocate is, is a major project. It's part of what I have to do as a, a therapist, you know, to develop that relationship within that person. But that's why I say the screamer type coach just replicates. You know, what was the, the author um, who wrote my championship season, you know, famous novelist from Charleston. Um, but at any rate, you know, he, he, he's, he's the one who had this terrible martinet father in the military. And then his coach at the Citadel was another screamer. 
So, you know, his whole youth was consumed with angry men taking it out on this young man. Yeah. And the results of that were, were, were devastating. Of course, it gave him a few novels and a couple good movies. Um, but, you know, at, at what a psychic price. And uh, I think that book, My Championship Season, I'm embarrassed I can't think of the man's name at this moment, um, is an excellent example of the inner life of the athlete. Here's a guy struggling, beating his tail off to maximize. He becomes a starting guard for the Citadel. Citadel, trying to please his father, trying to please the coach, failing at both. And so as far as he's concerned, for the first half of his life at least, he's a failure, whatever that means. Not worthy, an insufficient human being. That's a terrible thing to give to a child. Absolutely. And I want to go back. You mentioned uh, how some stories are obviously more powerful and useful for us to, to believe and takes us on a better process than, than the negative uh, inner voices that sometimes pop up or stories that we have. Um, in regards to this nature and nurture debate, I'm sure I, I, I've, I've heard some of your thoughts on it previously, but I'd love to have you talk through it. I think in, in my my perspective is that I don't know if we'll ever truly know if it's all nature, all nurture, what the exact percentage is. Um, and so if we don't know, then it makes more sense for, in my perspective, to, to, to view more heavily or to be more heavy on the nurture side, because that story allows us uh, some potential to go through the process or to have certain behaviors that do allow for us to grow and develop and have a growth mindset, so to speak. And, and in the webinar I did recently, I asked that question about what they thought these coaches, if it was, if it was nature, like if, if nature leaders are born or if they're made, and a lot of them said that, you know, they're, they're born that way. And mm -hmm. I think it was an interesting, um, I, I had not really come across that because most people I, I speak to really do have a growth mindset and think that nurture plays a large role. So all that to say, anything that, any insight mm -hmm. there in regards to this nature-nurture debate? And, and well, you're right, Ben. We'll never know the exact proportion. What we do know is it's the nurture side alone over which we have any powers. Right. We don't get to choose our nature. We don't choose our ancestry. We don't choose our nutritional experience as a child. We don't get to choose this, the psychology, the family. We don't choose our chromosomes. That's, that's out of our control. What we do control is the atmosphere in which, which a youth grows up. And that's where the coaches have enormous latitude. Mm -hmm. Most people that I know who had sports experiences have a great fondness for one of their coaches, maybe one, more than one, but typically one, because they saw in that person um, an energy and, and a wisdom and a stability and, and, and most of all, a, a guiding presence for them that was important in their development. So, um, you know, nature is nature. It'll keep being nature. Um, but nurture is something that we can affect and coaching is very powerful because one of the advantages sports and i wish more people i mean if i'm ever emperor, emperor of the universe why well, I, I will maximize you know the um you know, sports for everyone i don't mean any compulsive way but to 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 
get away from the notion of sheer competitiveness for the sake of the experience of camaraderie, goal setting, disciplines, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It's, it's a rich and valuable experience, you know, and, and intramural sports, I think, is, is extremely important for, for youth. And unfortunately, it can be, what we're talking about can be an experience for a very small coterie of gifted athletes and good for them, but that need that they have is, is shared by most of their, their comrades in school as well. I just would like to spread that as much as possible. Yeah, I'm with you. Uh, I think sports is, I think it's the perfect incubator for individuation or development. Uh, I think it's, it has a lot of everything that we need to do that well. Uh, if, we can, if we can tell our egos to decide and be humble in our approaches to it. Um, I'd love to, you mentioned at the beginning of this, actually, that fear and lethargy are two, not primary motivators, but two, um, two enemies of our development. Thank you. Perfect. Uh, two enemies of our development. Um, in regards to, to, to manhood, you, you had put together eight secrets that all men hold. Mm -hmm. Said that, um, one of the secrets is that men are driven by fear mm -hmm. sure in more detail and how did you come to that conclusion well first of all fear fear itself is not pathological fear is tied to our survival it's it's an instinct that is built in with which preserves the species when people have had certain disturbances in in their brains where they feel no fear they'll walk up to a dangerous animal or in front of a car so fear is protective the question always is the pragmatic question. What does fear make you do with your life? What does it keep you from doing with your life? That's the key. And that's where we have some responsibility, some accountability. What is it making me do? What is it keeping me from doing with my life? Now, from childhood on, as you know, boys get enlisted into this culture that says, if you show that you are uh, less and the, your comrades. This will make you laugh. But when I was a child, the worst thing you could call another boy was a jelly. You know, call somebody a jelly. I mean, it's pretty mild by today's standards. But um, you know, to call somebody was a jelly was about the worst thing you could say about them. And we all call each other jellies, I think. So the, the key was: all right, if you're hurt, try not to cry. If if you're uh, sad or disappointed, uh, don't show it. And, and, and men get enlisted in a conspiracy. And the word conspire means to whisper together. It's like we get whispering together that we're just gonna act like we have no fear, okay? Which is just stupid. But it's, it's what men do. And we ridicule that when we see it in, in, that's why the adolescent culture can be so cruel to, to people who show their emotions or, or to girls or something like that. You know, it's, it's like you don't want to go there because you're afraid it's going to undo that very shaky hold on manhood that you have yourself, you see. So that's, that's all a fear about being afraid. And that's the greatest, it's a cancer within the soul of men the fear of being afraid. So they have to show up in these overcompensated ways, which leads to bullying, for example, or for scapegoating of people or arrogance or something like that. We see it all the time in our culture. 
and and wheresoever you see that, you know the dirty little secret is well inside they're really frightened and just can't handle it. You see, the person of insight and courage can face that and ask the, as I said, the pragmatic question: What does it make me do? What does it keep me from doing? So fear is not the problem. Fear is is in a sense the arena in which we live our lives. You're not fearful. You're probably not conscious at some level. The question is, can you still address the task in the face of that? Now, when a you know fastball is coming at you at 90 miles an hour, or there's a high punt you have to catch, or something like that, uh, it's very hard if you're having other thoughts at the time. And that's what often happens in terms of that inner talk that you were referencing there. I think one of the keys. In, in sports is almost zen-like, is the capacity to crowd out uh, these other interfering thoughts, including crowds and, and so forth. I, my grandson in Texas is number one in their golf team of his university. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm very much admiring his apparent capacity to crowd out self-doubt and, and, and so forth and, and zero in on something. But that's not denying fear. That's just not allowing it to take center stage, allowing it to take over. We should never be ashamed of fear because only a psychotic or deluded person is fearless. And as, Cur as um, uh, Hemingway said, you know, courage is not the absence of fear, it's, it's showing up and doing what you need to do in the face of it, and that's, that's the whole point. I uh, was just writing that down, actually, and I heard it uh, spoken to differently that I thought was interesting. And it said that fear is not, uh, not the absence of fear, but something that is, or courage is not the absence of fear, but something that is more important, or seems yes. something is yeah. more important than fear. And I thought that that was a really interesting take on that I hadn't heard previously. Um, and let me, I want to go back really quick, because I want to make sure I have clarity on this. You said that our primary fear, what is our primary fear that drives us? Is it not, is it just in our, our, our masculinity that is the primary fear or not, not being um, completely, not completely understand that? Um, I was a little, I didn't fully understand that. Well, I, I guess the primary fear is um, always annihilation because, you know, life is lethal. So you do have to pay attention to that. Um, life is difficult and then you die, as they say. Um, I, I'm just saying that one of the fears that is endemic to our gender um, is the fear of fear. Yeah. And, and the fear that showing it will un, unman you, so to speak, or, or dissemble. I'll give you an example. I once had a client come in, a man who more or less had a gun at his head, his wife said, basically, if you don't start therapy, I'm, I'm out, out of here. So I was very reluctant. And of course, that was, that was not a good prognosis. But uh, when he walked in, he saw a, a box of tissue there. And he just kind of sniffed at it. I knew what he was saying to me. But I ignored it deliberately. And he thought I hadn't seen him. So he kind of sniffed it. And I said, what do you, what's up? And he says, I won't need that. I said, oh, really? And he said, no, no, that's for women. And I thought, how sad. Here's a big macho type guy 
who is afraid of a box of tissues. So afraid, he has to say, there's my enemy, and I'm going to keep that at bay. And you could realize, you see, I'm not judging him. I'm, I'm speaking sympathetically. This is a man owned by his fears, and the biggest fear is being fearful or being emotionally present to what has already happened within him. We don't choose our feelings. Feelings happen autonomously. They are qualitative analyses of how our life is going as seen by the psyche, not by our ego. Wow. So it's already happened. Now the question is, how accountable am I to that? And what does it make me do? What does it keep me from doing? Really good. Um, so my next follow-on question then is, I have a son, two sons now actually. Uh, the first, my firstborn's his name means courageous and wise warrior. And one of the things that we speak over him is this aspect of courage. And mm -hmm. what would you say is, um, should I do or should coaches do in general to help these young men be more courageous? Um, well, that's a very good question. I've never been a coach except in quite a different arena, perhaps. Um, I think if I were a coach, and I don't want to overdo this, I think at some point I would talk with them about what it is we're doing here together as a team, what it is we're doing as men, what is our goal? And, and I would slip in along the way, along the way, it's perfectly natural to have fears, self-doubt, um, setbacks, failures, defeats, but we're in this together and together we prevail and we show up again tomorrow. As my coach said, you get knocked down, you buckle up, you get ready for the next play. I, I think that helps normalize What's already going on in those players? Every one of them there is apprehensive about it. I remember specifically being afraid to play football because I wasn't a big guy. Uh, and I overcompensated in some ways when I played football. So it's like, if you don't want to get beat up by big guys, don't go play football, you know? Shows how bright I was. But I also knew enough, even as a 17-year-old, this is about trying to deal with my fear and um you know i can remember in college saturday mornings i i would have these enormous stomach aches sheer anxiety by five o'clock in the afternoon stomach ache was gone even even i at that point understood what that was about it was simply massive amount of anxiety and and yet i showed up every week and enjoyed showing up every week glad I did. Mm -hmm. One of the tests of all this is, you know, this may cost you, but after it's done, would you say this was worth my doing? And that's a key. Sometimes you don't know until you've gone through that experience. Um, but sometimes you just have to go through it and, and find out. But, um, you know, I still have anxiety before I give a public speech, as I said to you before, I, I feel 
lacking in energy. I think everything you're saying, well, people already know that, you know, I mean, no, that's the talk that you have in there. Uh, that's no different than saying this guy's fastball is not something you can handle, right? And uh, that, that uh, but you still show up. And that's why I said I have my own little talk about people are not here for me, they're, they're, they're here for themselves. You're, you're just a So the talk that I most helpful is where one can actually be focused back on the game. There's a beautiful aesthetic to all of these games. One of the things I was learning to do in that brief phase of my life was I was a defensive halfback in football. So I, watching the, the play unfold, all in milliseconds, of course, and seeing the beauty of that. Today, when I watch a game on television, I, that's what I always watch. I'm not watching the quarterback. I'm watching whether the guards are pulling or blocking. I'm watching the ends. And I'm imagining myself as a cornerback or, or, or a deep back. And, and the aesthetics of that, it's, it's kind of, um, as you know, a, a, a ballet. And when you do that, you're most in the game. The, the, the talk, the self-doubt, the anxieties disappear. There's a certain kind of, the same way I used to play golf years ago. I would, I would sing a song to myself in, in my head because the song kept me in a certain rhythm. I was trying to become no-minded, so to speak, because to preoccupy about, let's say, the 40 different stages to the perfect golf swing um, is going to make the worst swing in the world. So I, I, I found the best sports was when I could become no-minded no and be wholly present to that moment, mm. you see. And, and I think there are stories that we can all develop individually uh, that, that help us do that. Uh, at the end of the day, I'd, I'd like for every athlete to say, you know, I got hurt or I failed here or there or I got disappointed. But it was also fun and it was worth doing. And I'm going to carry this with me forever because I, I'm going to need these things, these attitudes, these behaviors, these disciplines in other parts of my life. And that's, that's where sport takes its proper place. It's in the context of a larger life. Excellent. Um... We have, I, I want to be respectful of your time. We have five more minutes. I could talk to you for hours, I'm sure, and I have plenty of questions, other questions. So I'd like to just kind of finish up here with mm -hmm. two, if that's okay with you. Uh, one, one's very easy. The other one, I'm sure we don't have time for. Um, so I'll start with that one. Maybe you could just do a quick highlight for me. But um, I, something I'm not, I, I don't fully understand. This is a deeper question, but um, is this idea of the shadow. And mm -hmm and it's integration into us, if we're supposed to integrate what that is, may, if you would be willing to just take a minute. Just... Well, very briefly, it's a complex subject, but basically the shadow was Jung's concept of those aspects of our personality that we don't find acceptable from a conscious ego standpoint. We don't like to think of ourselves as dishonest or greedy or vain. But then on the other hand, why would I be exempt from the human project? I'm not, I'm a human being. I carry the whole range of human motives, agendas, and so forth that have been documented since the beginning of recorded human history. 
So the, the, the shadow that I don't own within myself, I will have a tendency to project onto you, for example, and, and condemn in you what I'm not facing in myself. Or I could, it could catch me up at a time when I neglected and, and carry me away. That's why often people will do very self-defeating and destructive things and wonder how did that happen? What, what took over? Well, it's always been there. It's just I was ignoring its, its presence. So the single best thing we can do for others is to be less judgmental of them and more accountable to ourselves. And that shadow work is also always going on because there's a natural motive of the fragile ego to protect itself. I don't want to look at these things in myself. Okay, you don't want to look at them? Fine. Guess what? They're going to be showing up in your children. They're going to be spilling into your relationships. They're going to be playing out in the world that you're, you're a part of out there. They, they don't go away. They go somewhere always. So the best thing you can do for your family, your children, your world is to own some of your own stuff. Really good. Um, the last thing I'd like to do is do, a, I'm going to, I'm going to give some quotes, some really, some ones I really like that was either, either ones you said or ones that were straight from Carl Jung. And if you could just pick one, of these that I'm about to list off uh, and maybe just say something to that whatever your favorite one might be, maybe that's a better way to, to do it. So okay. uh, the first is that human, you had mentioned that human nature does not progress. Culture progresses, uh, mm -hmm. aspects of society change, but like human nature doesn't progress. I thought that was really an outstanding thing that was very insightful. Um, you, I had heard you say that we don't solve our problems, we just outgrow them. Mm -hmm. All recovering children, what is not addressed inside tends to spill into life around me. The past isn't dead, it's not even the past. The stories and experiences and scripts early on are still present. We we're either servicing them or running from them. Um, and then the final one that I was initially going to start with was the one from Carl Jung that says that until we make the unconscious conscious, uh, it will it will drive us and and we will call it and we call it fate, I think is. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So all of those are really interesting. What what might be your favorite amongst all those? No, they're all they're all interesting because they're all like our children. We love them all, so to speak. Um, I, I think I'll just pick out one. It's really Jung's idea that I was reflecting there, where he said, "You don't solve problems, you, but you can't outgrow them." In other words, everything that's ever happened to us and all the stories that we've accumulated inside of ourselves are with us always because we're creatures of history. You may not be aware of it, but it's present in you and potentially, when triggered, playing a role in your decisions, your life patterns, and so forth. However, places where we get stuck earlier on in our development can be overcome. Um, and it's like the real issues, pseudo issues are solvable. Life's real issues, like the balance between my obligation to others and my obligation to myself, or how do I show up in the face of my fears and limitations? Those are ongoing perennial problems. We don't solve them, but we can outgrow them. In other words, have a frame of reference that is larger than that conflict of opposites that would block us. Um, you, you said before that um, you know, courage is about having some value larger than your fear. That's exactly right. That's why people will die for a large cause. And uh, suffer grievous harm. Uh, and that's right, because we're meaning-seeking, meaning-creating individuals. And we suffer deeply from the disconnect of meaning. 
And, you know, happiness is not the goal of life. That's a transient experience that happens to us from time to time. Meaning is the goal. If what you're doing is meaningful for you, something inside will respond to it. It will resonate. If it's not meaningful in time, you can keep willing yourself to it, but that's what leads to burnout, depression, self-medication, self, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So that, that's why, in a sense, the issues of life all have to do with an ongoing dialogue between the ego me and the world out there and the ego me and the world in here. We don't live in a culture that cultivates a relationship to this inner life, but it's that which is dictating 90% of our responses to the world out there. There are things out there we have to respond to, of course, like earning a living and forming relationship and being accountable, et cetera, et cetera. But inwardly, what, what are the dynamics? And the ignorance of that means I'm walking in an unconscious way in a complex and difficult world. And um, that's not something solved once. It's a lifetime project. What is it I don't know about myself? What are the motives playing out here? Why this pattern? Why, if I do the right things, does it not feel right inside? Um, wh wh what do I wake at three in the morning reflecting upon? Uh, what is it that I know I need to do, but for reasons I don't know, I don't do, I don't mobilize to do? Those, those are the ongoing questions. And one of the things I try to do as a writer and as a therapist is to make those questions consciously, you know, because um, they're going on unconsciously all the time anyhow. Unconscious, then there's a greater opportunity for moving forward, taking greater ownership of one's life. And ultimately, I think that's what this mentoring role is about, is a wiser elder, potentially sharing with youth um, through work together, discipline, sacrifice, um, fun. Um, we're taking greater ownership of our life. It's a game, but it's, it's a preparation for the larger game that we call our lives. Mm -hmm. Wow. So I think that throughout, uh, I've, I've done probably, I think this might be our 90th podcast. I think that this might be my absolute favorite conversation I've had thus far. So I really appreciate um, all the work you've put in over the years to, to service uh, us and uh, to have all that, not this knowledge base that you have to service others too. I think that it's highly useful. So I will continue to uh, read up on some of your work that you've done. And uh, I know there's a lot of videos out there that uh, another podcast that you've been on previously that has a lot of your, some of your insights, you have written 16 books. So I'll be sure to uh, continue to read up on you. I think there are some great insights that you've brought uh, to my attention at least, and can be really useful to others. So I thank you for coming on to the show today. Again, I thoroughly enjoyed it. You're most welcome, Ben. It's been a very pleasant conversation and I thank you and I wish you well. Thank you very much. Hopefully we can talk again soon. All right. Be well now. You too, Dr. House. Thank you. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Captain's Coach Podcast with Ben Smith. If you liked what you just heard, please give us a five-star review on iTunes and check out our website at captainscoach.com. Join us next time for another edition of the Captain's Coach Podcast.